0: joining us today on A Virtual View. I'm here today with Dr. Jessica Simasek, who serves as the Director of the ICI-led Outreach Center and the Outreach Research Corps at the Masonic Institute for the Developing Brain. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: You're joining us from Minnesota today, right?
1: I sure am. We are right in the midst of that thaw, freeze... <laughs> Uh, freeze, uh, part of winter. So hopefully spring is just right around the corner.
0: Fingers crossed for us here in Indiana too. We haven't had quite as extreme weather as you guys, but it has been pretty unpleasant. Absolutely. (laughs) Dr. Somoset, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, so I am a researcher at the University of Minnesota. I'm a research associate in our Institute on Community Integration, which is in our College of Education and Human Development. And as you mentioned, I run and direct our tele-outreach center, which I'm excited to talk about today, and then also serve as the director on the service hub for tele-outreach at the Masonic Institute for the Developing Brain. And so what that means is... If other researchers within the Institute have interest in using telehealth in some of their studies, we can provide them with some support in that. My PhD is in educational psychology uh, with a focus on special education. I also have a lot of background in providing early intervention to young children with neurodevelopmental disabilities in schools and in clinical settings, but I worked a lot in homes, so I spent a lot of time with families in their homes with their children, and I've kind of carried that spirit forward into a lot of my current research, which is supporting families with children with autism or related neurodevelopmental disabilities in kind of naturalistic and developmental behavioral ways to support their child. That's really important to me. And then I'm also a parent to three wonderful children, and I too have a child on the autism spectrum. And so I also have experienced some of those services on, yeah. on the family side of things.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really valuable perspective to have because you're not just looking at it from a professional standpoint, you're looking at it from a personal one as well. So tell me a little bit about your experience with telehealth. Is that something that you've used since the pandemic or were you using that prior to the pandemic as well? Prior to the pandemic, myself and some of my colleagues have
1: already been researching telehealth quite a bit. Although it's been around for a while, in more of the medical setting it was, it was kind of a newer notion in the early intervention kind of world so that was going on prior to the pandemic then when the pandemic hit i think like everybody things had to rapidly shift some in good ways and some in not so good ways so in addition to you know making those shifts and my own projects and supporting providers in minnesota who are trying to rapidly you know make those shifts i was also a recipient i was on the end user side of things doing that with my children. For the services they were receiving. And I think that was a really eye-opening experience about ways in which telehealth can be a great useful tool and ways in which it wasn't the best tool for the situation.
0: I think that's important to consider because I love telehealth. I'm part of a telehealth resource center, but it's not a panacea. It's not perfect for everything. Could you tell me a little bit about the tele-outreach center at the Masonic Institute for the Developing Brain and what you do there?
1: Yeah, so it's really exciting. So like I said, this is, telehealth has, has been parts. it's a tool, you know, like you said, it's not a end-all be-all, but it, it is a way in which to deliver services and something we're learning a lot more about. So we've kind of taken some of that groundwork and found ways to try to apply it to other types of research, especially where people might be facing barriers to accessing care, specialty care especially. So the outreach center supports a lot of different initiatives that include not just research, but providing training, technical assistance, support to other researchers, support to providers. We do a lot of provider connection and training and, and probably learn more from them than they're even learning from us across the state of Minnesota. As you're probably aware, similar to Indiana, Minnesota is a large geographically dispersed state. There's people living throughout the state, and so a challenge an opportunity in Minnesota is ways to innovate so that anywhere you live, you're not traveling long distances to access the support or the services that you want. So TELA is doing that across different projects we have going on, sometimes in a small role where it's just a piece of a larger project where, for example, we might support a research team in collecting in-home data with children and families across the state for different types of studies. But then on the same day, we might turn around and do a webinar or an echo session or something kind of with providers and with stakeholders in different parts of the state. So we get to do a lot of variety of projects. And I would say we learn from each of them and grow new directions each year, but those are a few of the things we have going on.
0: How long has this outreach center been around? Like, what's the history of this look like?
1: The kind of center as it stands is relatively new. The Masonic Institute for the Developing Brain uh, has only been open for a short period of time, so I guess going on over a year at this point. We existed prior to that, but in much more constrained types of settings. In this center, it brings together researchers, clinicians who are focused broadly on areas of brain development. And so it allowed us to kind of branch out from the things we had been doing. And so I would say the telehealth research we've had going on has been for about seven or eight years. Doing so at the scale we're now doing at the teleoutreach center has been the last couple of years, which has been you know a really exciting journey to be on.
0: And like you said, Minnesota is a state with a lot of rural population and a lot of very spread out populations. When you're offering these services and working with your larger populations, are you working primarily with those rural populations?
1: We do a lot of work throughout the state. And I would say... Different regions of Minnesota are very unique. They have different assets and different ways of doing things. When we approach that work, we usually do so in a way of really long-term relationship planning of getting to know the different communities and different regions of our state. They often are, they have their own initiatives. They have their own idea of the things that they're doing. And so we're there as a partner to learn from them, to connect with them, and to kind of co-develop together initiatives. So one of the current studies we have open, kind of one of our larger studies, right now, the Autism First Study, That study is open to families in Minnesota. They don't have to be living in a rural area, but we have been able to include a lot of families in rural areas because it does not require travel to the Twin Cities campus, which is where Tele Outreach Center and myself are located, which is in the Minneapolis area of the state. And so if you're living in the Northern region of the state, that could be like a five-hour drive. So it has allowed us to include families regardless of where they're living, which is pretty exciting. But yeah, we do work across the state, but it's always in partnership And it's always in lots of ways led by the regions that we're
0: connecting with. And I hadn't even thought of the fact that being able to use telehealth and remote communications technology is going to allow you to get a more accurate picture of your entire state because you can reach those rural populations
1: yeah it does i think that's one way in which i've been thinking a lot about telehealth from the research perspective is again it's not going to be the right tool for every situation but it does allow researchers to expand outside of kind of constraints on needing a convenient sample of people who live within 30 miles because some on site participation is required, and that it's also not an all or nothing. We support some studies where some on site participation is required, but then researchers t- can collect additional connection and data between the visit time points without people having to travel, either the researchers going to a family or a family coming to you know, a research lab. So from that perspective, as you just said, it does allow us to kind of include people that are representative of people living in Minnesota and not kind of constraining people who are participating in research. And of course, that is important because if interventions are being developed with a convenient sample, of participants, they're not likely accurately reflecting the needs or the responses or the effectiveness of when those interventions are then applied on a broader level. And that leads to perpetuation of health disparities and things like that. So it does have an important role to play in research that I think we're all kind of still learning, but it does seem promising that it's opening new doors for inclusion in research.
0: That's very promising from a standpoint of health equity. And that's something that I personally am very passionate about, making sure that everybody has equal access to care. And that starts with making sure the research that is done is accounting for every population, not just Mm -hmm. the ones who can drive to a university hospital. Absolutely. Switching gears a little bit. So you've recently done work addressing telehealth-enabled early diagnostic and intervention package for children with autism spectrum disorder who are waitlisted for diagnostic evaluation, or intervention services. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? That is
1: one of the kind of bigger studies we have going on right now, and it's based on some earlier work that we pilot work that we've done in this area. And in Minnesota, and I know this is not unique to Minnesota, the wait times for getting an evaluation for autism, for example, are 18 months easily, sometimes more... <laughs> yeah, it's it's really long than, say, a family accesses that and their child's diagnosed with autism. There's usually another wait period to access early intervention supports, and those are driven by a lot of factors that we can talk about too, but obviously it creates a lot of problems because families are bringing their children in, they want their children to have support and services, so they're doing what outreach is asking them to do, providers are making those referrals, and then families are just sitting there waiting for really, right. really years. And during that time, that's a really critical time in development, and it's also a time of a lot of stress and uncertainty for families. So they're just right. kind of waiting, knowing there's some things they think their children would benefit from that they can't get them access to. Supported a lot of families who have moved like their family to try to access services faster and just had to make a lot of really difficult decisions. And so this is an area that I'm really passionate about. And again, I want to be careful. Telehealth is not going to be the answer. That's a very complicated problem. but. What we had been doing prior to this current study that I'll tell you about is providing some caregiver coaching. So connecting with families in their home with their child and coaching them during natural routines. So they're playing with their child, they're having snack time, they're doing that type of thing. Different ways to kind of encourage communication, collaborative play, things like that. That had seemed to be pretty successful. Families tended to like it. It was showing some promising results on kind of the individual child level. And so the current study, I worked closely with Dr. Amy Esler, who is the director of the Autism and Neurodevelopment Clinic, my colleague, Dr. Del Dimion, who's a co-director of Outreach, And we put together kind of a package to do both a remote eval for families who didn't have an evaluation yet. And that was led by Dr. Esler. And then the intervention package. And so what that did is it allowed us to reach out to families who are waitlisted and they could keep their spot on the waitlist and all of that, but then they could participate. On the research end, we could have kind of that confirmation of if their child was going to meet the criteria for autism or not, but then they could also have that evaluation to hopefully access other things that they wanted their child to be receiving. And we're in the midst of that right now, but we've been learning a ton and we've had a lot of interest from families in that study and just the staggering amount of time that a lot of these families have waited already to try Mm -hmm. to access. These services, I think it's something that more people need to know about. And so, what we're studying isn't necessarily to you know replace great supports they're going to go on to get, but trying to get to them as quickly as we can, so that they can have support, the family can be supported if they have some immediate needs. We can connect them with care coordinators through the clinic, also just kind of wrap around and give them some support in ways to kind of encourage communication and and things like that with their child during just naturalistic routines. So that's a study that I think has been really eye opening. And, you know, something that could obviously be translated into other types of areas outside of neurodevelopmental disabilities. Certainly not the only population
0: that waits quite a bit to access the services that they need. And I'm sure that that time when those families are waiting is just so stressful and uncertain for them and for their children and getting some sort of communication and support, even if it's not exactly what they want, is much better than nothing at all.
1: Yeah. And I think from being on the parent side of that, from living that, I think as a parent, you feel like you're helping your child access things that are going to be supportive to them. And you're at least kind of starting to take steps in that direction, even if you're not able to fully get every single thing that they need. So that, yeah, that is just one example that we have going on, but it's certainly one that we've kind of started to look into how to expand that. And there's also a NICU follow-up. Clinic here, and ways in which there could be some family supports for online, virtual kind of family supports for families whose children have graduated from the NICU and they're transitioning back home, and just making sure that they are able to be connected and supported too. So that's in very early stages, um, a project led by Dr. Marla Mills and Dr. Michael Georgief and that we're kind of supporting and taking some of the lessons learned from that project and seeing how we could apply them to other groups.
0: I'll be excited to see how that shakes out because I think with telehealth, a lot of the time, the name of the game is just providing any sort of connection because there's a lot of these services that folks in rural populations, folks with connection issues, that kind of thing, just cannot access any sort of services.
1: Yeah. It's, it's been interesting. And I'm sure it has been for you too, to go <laughs> through the pandemic as somebody who does a lot of work in the area of telehealth. and. Yeah. I do get asked quite a bit of, okay, now telehealth isn't required as much as like an urgent necessity. What is the role that it plays? And Mm -hmm. I think that's even been something that I've continued to think about and change my own perspective on. I certainly don't think it's the right tool for every situation. And I think, of course, we all we all probably got to experience some ways in which it wasn't the most effective thing to yeah. do during the pandemic. But I think as I've kind of come through thinking about things, it does continue to surprise me different ways people are using technology, maybe not even in like the live synchronous you know version that we're using, but asynchronous modalities and training platforms and things like that. So it is surprising. It's such a fast moving field. But the last few years, I've been a lot yes I do stuff related to telehealth but I think what we're all moving towards is like flexible service delivery models it's not yeah. a one-size-fits-all even what we're doing the child is still getting direct support right we're not connecting mm. with a child over a computer and telling them to do something because I think most one to five-year-olds would be like bye but, um, <laughs> but there are a lot of tools of ways to do capacity building of more generalist providers with connecting with more specialty training supervision just increasing quality and access in those ways where maybe the person receiving the services, they're still meeting face-to-face with their primary care provider or their educator. But that educator or that primary care provider is now being supported in additional ways or has their smoother referral processes in terms of like a connection tool, the thread running between these different services and supports. I think that can be a role that telehealth can increasingly play in those situations where, again, maybe it isn't the best tool for direct provision of some type of service. But it's Mm. definitely an interesting time
0: (laughs) to be in the field of telehealth, which I'm sure you would agree with. I would definitely agree with that. I recently went to the American Telehealth Association's annual conference, and there was a ton of discussion just about telehealth role, not just now, but five years from now. And I do think that we're going to see a ton of that hybrid care kind of models where you do have this in-person support from a provider, but you also have a lot of things that are supported through technology and through telehealth, remote communications technology, and this asynchronous stuff. This is something I could talk about all day and I frequently do, but, but I am excited to see, excited and a little nervous, but mostly excited to see where everything goes related to telehealth in the next decade or two.
1: Yeah, it does feel like such a fluid and
0: fast changing environment. And
1: I think that one of the challenges is the research keeping up with the technology expansion, like things are just rapidly advancing. And that's just always going to be a challenge with research. But just really monitoring, making sure I think one thing that I'll talk about, it sounds like you do as well, is that making sure we're monitoring so that telehealth remains a tool to overcome disparity in care and and access and quality and, and that it doesn't perpetuate or, of course, cause additional disparity in access. And I think that takes really careful monitoring. There's some things that we do that have been helpful. We have a lending library of technology, so that's been a helpful tool. We can send out a hotspot or a tablet to loan to families during participation, things we have going on. So I think that's been helpful. Another thing we'll kind of, we've tried to be really flexible and maybe there's ways that we can do that in research that isn't as easy to do in practice, but just working around family preference of what they feel comfortable with and, and just their availability to all the kinds of things you'd have to deal with in practice as well. But it's something to keep an eye on. And most of this is COVID related and so it's hard to know, but I think there's been a lot of promising work in that area of, oh, look, this is improving access to care. And then there's been a few times that I've seen some reports where people might not be accessing in the same pattern, that some of the communities we really want to be able to benefit from telehealth are not accessing it in the same way. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's really on us to kind of understand why is that and monitor the data and keep trying to improve so that we're not adding yet another layer of disparity and that we are continuing to improve access to care. So that's something I think for all of us to make sure that when we're out training providers, we're helping people keep an eye on proactively, plan on the proactive end as much as possible. And, and a lot of that starts with research and inclusion in research and making sure that we are really accounting for everyone when we're trying to study how well things work.
0: I think that's so important and you hit the nail right on the head because I think as we sprint forward with this technology that's so exciting and has the possibilities to just change the way that we engage with our health as a society, it's so exciting and fantastic, but I feel like health equity and policy and research and all of these pieces that are so important to making sure that this is used in a way that ensures health equity for everyone, a lot of the time that does get left behind. Yeah. I, <laughs> it does make me nervous when I see all of this fantastic new technology coming out and there's not considerations for, how are we going to make sure that there is equitable access to this and that this is being used in a way that helps the most people get access to better healthcare and to more affordable, more accessible, all, all of these things that are so important for ensuring that care is available to everyone. So yeah, that's something that I am very passionate about and something that I think needs to be in the forefront of everyone's mind as we move forward with how we are using telehealth. Absolutely,
1: yeah. It can't be a afterthought, it needs to be kind of considered right from the beginning and alongside throughout. So it, it is really important. I, I like your description of it's really easy to get swept up in like, oh, this is so exciting, or this is has such potential for, you know, change that we really have to implementation science and, and making sure right. that in that excitement, which is it is exciting, it's okay to be excited, but that we don't leave anyone behind.
0: Yeah, I think as people get excited about like AI and and all of these emerging health technologies, we have to be cognizant of doing research and making policy that supports the use of these in a way that's equitable. Absolutely.
1: They are tools, right? And so if they're tools who are being developed without equity in mind, they're going to naturally be flawed. And so I think that it is a first
0: step and it's an ongoing partnership throughout the process. And something that I did wanna uh, touch on before we got distracted by this very important discussion about the future of telehealth and health equity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that some of the waiting for these patients with ASD is up to and over 18 months for receiving services. Could you explain why that wait is there? Why Why there is such a long wait to get access to these services? I can do my best too. So <laughs>
1: there are a lot of factors, as, as you're probably aware, but some of those factors are, there are significant, I mean, I think there's even a report from Minnesota calling them severe shortages of providers to provide mm-hmm. these types of services to do autism evaluation and that is not unique to autism that bands across many behavioral health uh, developmental areas there's shortages in special educators there's shortages in psychologists speech language pathologists name this provider specialty and there's probably a shortage in that area Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to, you know, meet the needs of a lot of children without sufficient resources, right? Without enough people to to do the job. And, and so that's one challenge. Another challenge is that the people who, who are able to do these things or the clinics that do offer autism evaluation are usually clustered in, for us, the Twin Cities metro, but in other states. So they're kind of large metro areas. And that makes it even more challenging for, for families because now they're going to need to find transportation to get there, childcare for other children. And I think another thing is that there's so many different systems and steps connected. I'm kind of going to point A of maybe I have a concern about my child's development to point Z of their receiving the services and supports that I want them to and that are benefiting them. And at each of those steps, if you are experiencing some barriers to care access, you're getting slowed down more and more and more. And so there's just a lot of places that the quote unquote system can kind of break down. So that's one reason. Very big part of that is just availability of providers. Almost all the providers have wait lists. Some have to close their wait lists because they just don't have the availability of the personnel. So that's one of the challenges. And then of course there's families face challenges and funding. There's a lot of paperwork involved, a lot of navigating that's required. So families have to kind of take on all of these different they don't usually have someone there navigating it with them. They're trying to call this place and call that place and they have to get this paperwork and they have to call, you know, their their county and and it's just a lot of steps involved that all are linked with wait times and, and things like that. So it's a pretty complex challenge, but it's certainly not one that is getting better. It's existed prior to the pandemic, so this is not a new challenge that's happened because of the pandemic. I think it's important people understand that, but the pandemic certainly didn't. Do anything to make it better right it probably made it worse because we lost more providers kids who maybe would have been identified and started the process earlier didn't so it's it's a huge challenge and it's not one that telehealth in and of itself is probably going to be able to overcome it is Mm -hmm. like you said there's a lot of policy implications there's a lot of just understanding How do we deliver services to so many children who live in different parts of the state? And then there's a lot of populations that do face disparities in access, and not just because they're living in a rural area. There are racial disparities, there are children... And families who are from culturally or linguistically diverse communities. And there's a lack of providers, Medicaid providers who are Black and Indigenous and able to meet the needs of different communities and different groups. And there's biases, right? So right. children might be misdiagnosed or parents' concerns might not be taken the same way. And it's important that I know it can be hard when things are such a complex problem because it feels like, well, nothing I'm going to do is going to help. But the more that we recognize and talk about that full problem the more we kind of come together and consider all of these different pieces to it it's a big challenge it's a really big challenge i would be a happy person if we had every child and family off of off of waitlist and they were accessing what they needed i think that that's a really good goal for providers and researchers and stakeholders out there policymakers is let's get these families off of waitlist and, and get kids access to what they
0: need. Yeah. And I'm sure that all of this is compounded by having a kiddo who doesn't necessarily, like they face different difficulties than a neurotypical child would. So I'm sure that this is difficult for them as well as for their, their caregivers and their family.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it it is a big challenge. Yeah. You kind of name it and families are, are waiting for it. It's hard. And it also takes a lot of partnership. A lot of these different services are provided from different types of providers, you know, Mm -hmm. different education, clinical. And so the more they can kind of wrap around and center children and families to make sure that they're getting the things that they need. And again, telehealth is definitely not like, a solution to that, but it is a way to link and coordinate and connect mm-hmm. and wrap around plan. The more we can think of ways to use tools like that, I think that helps because someone might be working with a family and the family mentions something that might be my, outside of my purview or outside of the scope of what their speech language pathologist is providing them, for example. But if they kind of are able to connect them with someone or direct them of like who to bring that concern to, let's say it's sleep, that kind of keeps them moving forward and it doesn't put all of the oneness on the caregiver. We all take on some oneness knowing that children, all children are going to function best when they're getting sleep, when they're, you know, um, (laughs) that all of those things are, are kind of happening in synchrony. So it is a challenge when a lot of those systems aren't working the way we need them to and they're kind of in this waiting period. It's a big area that
0: needs more focus for sure and you got a lot of stakeholders working and they've all got their own roles and hopefully telehealth is a tool that they can use to help with some of this but it's not going to fix all of it nor do i think that people think it will it's just maybe some of those people who are really invested in that new technology and who aren't thinking about the larger implications (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) um. that is why it's yeah probably important things stay very grounded in you know Mm -hmm. in evidence connection and that we're all kind of trying to Carry forward things that are helpful, but knowing that next year maybe there'll be something totally different that's more helpful. And, and yeah. then that's the pathway. So,
0: yeah, just understanding capabilities is important. <laughs> it is, yes. So, what does the future of the tele-outreach center look like? I know you mentioned that you were doing some work with NICU and recently discharged NICU babies and their families, but. On the the whole, what does the the future look like?
1: So that's a great question. I mean, we are now expanding kind of into new areas, and that's one of them. We also have some very very new start work starting up that is just getting off the ground. That's a little bit more globally focused. That's pretty exciting. But I think our future, you know, really looks like we're gonna keep adapting <laughs> as the technology fear kind of keeps evolving. And so part of what we're doing is trying to learn about things and then help kind of scale them out to the community. And then that opens us up to learn about some new things and scale them out into the community. And so some of those new areas, like I mentioned, there's a lot of really great clinical researchers here at at MIDB. Nikki Follow-Up is one of them. There's a great Birth to Three program. And and so that's another group we've started to collaborate with a little bit. There's Child and adolescent Psychiatry. And we have some projects Going on with them, and we have a, Dr. Aldame and one of my colleagues. She does a lot of work in the area of self-injury, and so we have some working groups that are going on that are focused on on some of these different areas. And and again, not with the sense that telehealth is going to be the answer to all those things, but that it's a tool, mm-hmm. and it's it's a tool not just for care access, but it's a tool for connecting for low incidence kinds of kids with low incidence kinds of needs, right? And like things like self-injury that might not affect every single child. Maybe that only affects a couple children within a school, Mm. but if we can connect more broadly, then we can learn more and partner with those communities. So, So those are some of the things we have going on. My hope is if we look out three years, five years, we're able to Try some new things like satellite sites. I think those are a really great way of having another location that has the equipment set up that has some facilitators there for families that might not have access or might not prefer to use, you know, internet within their homes. I think that's a really interesting thing to think about, having community locations that are kind of enabled for telehealth, so to speak. So that's one area that I'd really like our center to grow in, looking at different populations, looking at different technologies. I mean, there's so much you can do with synchronous video conferencing that the sky's the limit, But I really want to kind of start to explore you know, the asynchronous realm, remote monitoring, mHealth, you know, messaging, things like that, because I think there's there's a lot that those tools might be able to offer to again, kind of like being the thread across systems, across providers, and and wrapping around a child. That's, we have kind of on the horizon, hopefully, is, is new projects, new energy, and continuing to kind of take what we are learning. And a really important role that we have is we have a lot of connection with the community and continuing to grow that so that The community is telling us, this is what we need. These are the strengths we have. This is what we want from you. And we're involving community in all aspects of our work. And then things that we're learning that work, then those are now happening in community settings. And we can then look at adapting different interventions and assessments and technologies. So I hope that's also something that's happening in three to five years, that we're successfully not just disseminating, but continuing that cycle of learning from the community implementing and learning from that knowledge and improving practices throughout
0: the state. Yeah, really exciting stuff. Thank you again for joining us today and having a conversation with us about what you do at the Outreach Center. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You have a great weekend. Yeah, you as well. Thank you for listening to A Virtual View. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA, Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of, or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.